0: Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Ah, man, <laughs> oh. I'm with you, Linda. It's funny how God rewrites things. Feel a bit like a proud father right now. Um, If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter two. For those of you that know the story of the scriptures, uh, not planned by awakened people, that we would talk about this story today. Ironically enough, Um, this is the beginning of the church in the book of Acts. Isn't that isn't that interesting? (laughs) How that works. So we're in this series, Eat This Book, and we're kind of wrapping it up, we're rounding the corner, Um, and uh, I want to start this morning by asking the question, how many of you wear corrective lenses, uh, either like uh, in your person or on your face, raise your hands, right now keep them raised, and how many of you, if you were to take those corrective lenses off or out, I would become very blurry, keep your hands raised, right, right, so these corrective lenses, they sort of help you see the world as it is, right. Uh, Without them, whatever is in front of you becomes quite blurry and and difficult to see. And I want to suggest the possibility that the book of Acts, um, and for those that aren't aware, the book of Acts is really Luke chapter 2 or Luke volume 2. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke was one of the gospel writers. The book of Acts was written by Luke, and many believe that it's just a continuation of the gospel story. Uh, So, this is Luke chapter 2, or Luke volume 2, and I want to suggest that in order to understand Luke and Acts as Luke intended it, uh, a particular lens is needed in order to do that. Uh, And it's one of ancient Judaism, it's one of Jewish, first century Jewish culture at the time of Jesus and before. Um, Now, I don't know if you um, maybe have ever had this kind of experience before. But um, how many of you have ever come to the Bible, and especially in a time like this when somebody says, in order to understand Luke and Acts, you have to understand first century Judaism, and you kind of think, like, what chance do I have in this deal of understanding? Anybody ever been there before? Um, I remember when I was a youth pastor, I was telling Laura, and this is when I knew my youth pastor days were numbered, because I wanted to talk about, like, first century Judaism with high school students. Let's be honest, right? Like, who to make out with is kind of, like, right at the top of the list. First century Judaism is not... So I was telling Laura about this, and, and she just kind of like in a moment of or exasperation sort of threw up her hands and was like, like, what chance do any of these kids, let alone me, the pastor's wife, have of understanding this if I have to understand first century Judaism and all this other kind of stuff? So I wanted to start here because I think this is a really important piece to the whole puzzle. When Romeo, or when Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet, it's, it was and remains bound in time. You can't understand Romeo and Juliet outside of sort of England that in the time that he wrote it and the kind of English that Shakespeare used to write it. So if you want to have a shot at understanding Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet, you have to understand that language, that context, that culture. And Romeo and Juliet is bound to that context, time, and culture. Are you tracking? So you can't understand it outside of that. The Bible, in, on one hand, is the same. It's, it was written in a particular time, context, culture, in a certain language, to certain groups of people, and in order to really understand what's going on, it really helps you to know sort of the behind-the-scenes stuff. But what chance do you have? I want to I remind us as we sort of go down this road, because that's really what I want to unpack this morning with Luke and Acts. I want to remind us that the Bible is something wholly other- Kierkegaard and Barth and and a few others had this way of talking about God. wholly other, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other. And the scriptures are in the same category. They are in another category of literature. While on the one hand it's a book written by people and it's a literary work and it's beautiful and fascinating, it is on the other hand one of the ways by which God reveals God's self to us. And so when we open it and we subject ourselves to it and we sort of listen to it, there remains the distinct possibility of the living God revealing God's self to you and to I, regardless of how much we know about ancient Judaism. Can I get an amen? amen. So when we do this, we're actually we're, we're opening ourselves up to the possibility of God revealing God's self to us. So what I want to do this morning is take that, which is always present anytime we open the, the word of God, And I would encourage you to eat this book because of that fact. I want to take that possibility of God revealing himself to us in this moment as we open this word and then also combine it with study and hopefully sort of peeling back some of the layers of what Luke is doing in hopes that we might understand, in hopes that we might hear from God. Anybody up for that today? Okay. So um, uh, Acts chapter 2 starting in verse 1, says this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, like a blowing, like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. God, as we open this word, as we uh, come from all the places that we come and bring all of the things that we bring into this room, uh, we, I recognize that uh, there's something special about this word, there's something special about this book, and so as we open it, as we uh, listen to it, may we have eyes to see you and ears to hear you, and hope, may we be open to possibilities that we maybe weren't open to before. May we may our our uh, our capacity to understand you and uh, may it grow today uh, because of our time together. We pray in your name, Amen. So here is a particular lens that I think you have to, uh, or or Luke is asking for us to understand, and, and it certainly has to do with Judaism. So I, let me start by saying this: when we read the word, when we read the scriptures, we have to remember that for the ancient Jews. What they had was Torah, right? The first five books of the Bible, which they considered to be scripture, God's word. And then later on, as the prophets wrote and the, the other, you know, the chroniclers wrote, um, those things were added. But for the ancient Jews, Torah was, or Torah was the law. It was God's word. And for them, God's spirit was present in Torah or in the giving of the law. Turn to Exodus chapter 2, if you, or Exodus chapter 24, if you will. This is the story of the the Israelites coming out of Egypt, and this is Moses, um, and one of the times when Moses is asked to come up onto the mountain with God. So in Exodus chapter 24, it says this, then the Lord said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nahab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, you are to worship at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. Verse 3, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. That one echoes through Israel's history. Um, Moses wrote down everything the Lord had said. Now skip down to verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to... Come up to me on the mountain and stay here. This is where it originally, in the original text it says, Come up on the mountain and be on the mountain. And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments I have written for their instruction. And then Moses set out with Joshua his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For for six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. The Israelites, this is interesting, to the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. To Moses, he entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights." This is the giving of the law to the Israelite people. And what I want to tease out this morning is for the Jewish people, this was not a list of 613 commands. This was not a list of rules and regulations, do's and don'ts. I think when, when we look back at the Old Testament, it's sort of this massive weight that hangs around the neck of the people. 613 commands that they have to follow in order to be God's people. And it's sort of this heavy thing. But for them, that's, that wasn't the case at all. Rather. Torah was the means by which, now get this, Torah was the means by which the Israelites could be God's people. It was was the clear expectation and way by which Israel was in relationship with God. And not only that, but at Sinai, where Moses receives the law and Torah for the people, God's spirit is present. Right, And this is, told, this is made known by the lightning and the thunder and the flashes. What the author's trying to say is God's spirit is in this moment and here on this mountain. And it's made very clear. So for the Jew, Torah was a gift. It was grace. It was the way by which they could be God's people. It actually enabled them to be in relationship with God. Which if you think about the spirit for us as the church, the spirit is the means by which we come to know and understand who God is. This, this is what the law was for the Jewish people. One only needs to read Psalm 119 to hear the Jewish people's love for Torah and the love of the law that they had because they knew that it wasn't 613 commands of do's and don'ts and if you didn't, you got whacked. That wasn't the heart of it. The heart of it was this was a gift from God to be able to be God's people in the world. So it's a total mind shift for many of us when we look back at the Old Testament. It's sort of this God of thunder, God of wrath, you know, God of whatever. But that's not how the Jews saw and understood the law. And this was really important. And so when, the, the, when God descends on Mount Sinai and gives the law to Moses, they believed that the Spirit of God indwelled the law. Now, if you move on in Israel's history, you find that, um, and we've covered this, when they come out of exile and they come into the land and then they're given the judges and all that other kind of thing, then they start asking for kings. And it's at this point when Israel's history sort of crosses over or is on this precipice and moves towards what it ends up being, which becomes exile. Um, How many of you remember 1989 when the Minnesota Gophers played the Harvard, uh, what, I don't even know their, uh, what's their mascot? Does anyone even know? Harvard, the Crimson, there we go, the Crimson. The Harvard Crimson, um, they played the Minnesota Gophers for the national championship in hockey. Does anybody remember this? Do you remember this? We were at your house, Grandpa. This is my grandpa over here, everybody, Grandpa Chaz. I remember I was, uh, well, in 1989, I would have been 12 years old, I grew up in a family where it was all, we all played hockey, so all five boys we played hockey, and um, this was a huge deal. We made it to the Final Four as the Gophers, and we were, we were in the championship game against Harvard. We were all over at my grandpa's house, all my brothers, my mom, my dad, my cousins, everybody, uh, my aunts and uncles, and so we were at this deal, and it was, it was a barn burner. I mean, it was one of those games just up and down, back and forth and uh, right at the end of the third period we score to tie it up so it's 3-3 three, three, end of the third period and it goes to overtime right and sudden death overtime in hockey because it's like death when you when you lose <laughs> so it's sudden death it's sudden death and so you know we're all just you know flying high and there's this like spirit in the room right there's this expectancy this hope like we tied it up this fade, we're gonna win this game Come down, this guy named Lance Pitlick, he just clangs one off the pipe. I mean, a real clanger. You could hear it on the TV. It was, have you ever seen a puck hit a pipe? You know, the, four, the goal posts? I'm out of your field here. Okay. There's metal posts around the goal, and when the puck hits it, it like, makes this really rattling, clanging noise. So he just clangs one off the pipe, and we're all thinking, like, this is it. It's the, the puck caroms into the corner, the Harvard comes down, and they score, and we lose. I know right (laughs) and it was literally like someone had sucked the life out of the room have you ever been in a situation like that at a sporting event or maybe like at a play or a a show or something where there's this like everybody's this huge moment and everyone's there and then something tragic happens and it's like like a vacuum gets hooked up to the door and just sucks the life out of the room There was this spirit of expectancy and hope that was present. I remember it like it was yesterday and then in a moment it was gone and it was this like drought of where do we go from here? (laughs) You know, we're so close. When the Jews went into exile again, the kingdom splits, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, which led to foreign countries coming into Israel and deporting them to other lands. It was like someone had sucked the spirit out of the room. For the Jews, they believed that God was absent in this period, that somehow, whatever, however God was present among them previously, th- when they went to exile again, it was like the spirit was absent. And you find this in in the text, in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, This these sort of, like guttural how long O lord until you return when god will you restore israel why does it seem like the nations and the pagans are prospering when the righteous are not there's this where are you kind of question and so for the jews in exile it was as if the spirit had been absent or gone or had left the building So you had this beautiful moment on Sinai, God's presence was with them, and in the law and in the spirit, God was there, and then somehow in exile as they're taken away, that God's spirit is absent, which moves to this sort of expectation that God would one day return to Israel. And we've covered some of this, but you have to understand that this is the context in which Jesus comes. So for the Jewish people there was this expectation that not only would Yahweh return to Zion, return to Jerusalem, return to Israel, but there were a couple of things that would that were connected to that. One, that the Messiah would return, two, that the spirit of God would once again be poured out, and three, that the kingdom of God would be established. Think through some of the Old Testament scriptures. Messiah would come. We studied Isaiah. Isaiah 49 to 61. There are these four suffering servant passages in Isaiah. The last of which Jesus quotes in Luke chapter 4 when he's in the temple. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. To set the captives free. That one day a Messiah would come and return to Israel. Two, that God's spirit would once again be poured out in Israel. Remember in this, in the story of the book of Acts, Peter is found preaching and they think he's bombed. They think he's just hammered out of his gourd, drunk. Um, because he's talking and all these people are doing these crazy things. And he says, listen, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. People don't drink at nine in the morning, number one. But number two... He quotes from the book of Joel that one day when God returns that the spirit would be poured out and your young men will prophesy and your old men will have visions. So the Messiah would return, the spirit of God would once again be poured out on Israel and third, that the kingdom of God would be restored. Think Isaiah chapter 9, the famous Christmas one, that from this root, this stump of Jesse, this branch will come and its kingdom will have no end. So these are all the expectations that the Jewish people have about what would happen when God returned to Israel. you tracking him? Now, think through Jesus' last week. There are a couple of Jewish festivals. There's a number of Jewish festivals that the Jewish people would would sort of um, celebrate in a year. But three of them happen within Jesus' last week of his life and the next 50 days. Passover being one of them. Passover was the celebration when the Israelites come out of Egypt. They sacrifice the lamb because in that time or in that moment, they, they put the blood on the doorpost and the angel of death passes over all of the houses of Israel in Egypt and all of the firstborn sons are spared. So this is Passover. This is the week prior when Jesus comes into the city, Palm Sunday we call it. This is the beginning of the Passover week. The second one is the, the festival of first fruits. So a couple of days after Passover the the priest in the temple would come out onto the temple steps and he would he would grab he would have like a sheaf of grain and he would wave it on the temple steps to signify the celebration of the first fruits of the harvest so the t- the priest would come out on the morning and he would he would wave these these grains to celebrate the first fruits that are being harvested and then 50 days after Passover was what they called Shavuot. And this was uh, the celebration of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Is anyone putting this together? <laughs> There's candles behind me. I'm not going to back up into them. <laughs> Listen, Jesus' last week of his life, when is he killed? Passover. When the, when the Passover lamb would be slain for the families in Israel. Jesus is killed. Two and a half days later, and on very, very good numerical research, the morning that the priest in Israel would have come out onto the temple steps and waved the, the grain signifying the first fruits of the harvest, the tomb is empty. What does Paul called Jesus? The first fruit of new creation. 50 days after Passover, what would the Jews have been celebrating? What we now call Pentecost? Shavuot, which is the giving of the law. And what is given when the law is given? The Spirit of God. What is Luke saying? Luke is, abs- is matching these things up and saying, if you have eyes to see it, God is doing a new thing and God is returning to Israel. And guess who's back? Messiah, Spirit of God, Kingdom of God. All of this is wrapped up in Luke's telling of the story in Acts and at the end of Luke in the resurrection. Now let me bring back a quote that I said from last week. This is N.T. Wright and he absolutely nails it on this one. He says, first, Jesus is really alive again second so what is luke saying in all this he's saying one jesus is really alive again two therefore he's really the messiah the world's true lord three god's new creation has begun and four this is the sharp edge of it all like this is the beginning of it and therefore you have an urgent and important job to do and a new identity to do it with what Luke is saying in Acts and in his in Luke and in Acts is that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the, he's the world's true Lord. And therefore, God's new creation is bursting forth in the midst of this old one. And therefore, those of you who are in Christ now have the Spirit of God empowering you sending you out into the world to do and be what God has called God's people to do and be. This is exactly what Israel was supposed to do and be. God calls Abraham and sends them, gives them the law on the mountain 50 days after the Exodus. And the Spirit of God goes with them into the world. What Luke is saying is that there is a new thing happening in and through Jesus. And Jesus has taken all that Israel was and was supposed to be upon himself and now begins this, with this new seed of new creation and resurrection. And it's this is the sharp edge of it all. So the question that is begging to be asked at this point is, so what? Right? I mean, like... You all have jobs. You parked your cars out here. You go home and you have kids who don't tie their shoes or put their clothes away or hang up their coats or put their homework away or do their homework. Or, Okay, sorry. That was a little bit more of me than you. (laughs) Like, so what? The Spirit of God has been given to you if you follow Jesus and are a part of this new thing called the church. So what? I want to just draw out two sort of... um, The the, the scriptures talk a whole lot about what the spirit does and how it impacts and the implications of the spirit of God being given to you as a believer in a part of the church. I want to just tease out two things. And this comes from my own, um, I guess, journey as well as my own thinking and praying through this in this last week. So number one, what are the implications of this? Number one, where the spirit of God is, there is healing and transformation. Where God's spirit is present, things get healed and transformed and remade. Uh, there's this beautiful thought in the Anabaptist tradition, and it's, it's, you could sum it up in this way. The mind can never see what the heart is not willing to obey or trust. The mind cannot see what the heart isn't willing to obey or trust. Let me ask you this question. What do you expect God to do in your life? What do you expect God's Spirit present in your life if you follow Jesus? What do you expect of God? What do we as a community, what do we as a church expect God to do in our midst? Is there any sense of expectation that God's Spirit is present here among us and is doing new things, recreating things, transforming things, making things new? It's no secret that an organization always looks like its leadership, whether it's a church, whether it's a donut shop, or whether it's Apple. An organization will always look like its leadership. And so I recognize it's fair to say that Awaken, more often than not, has a very intellectual, cognitive kind of experience. You don't have to go far from the guy who's taught a hundred times here to recognize that. I get that. Many of us, myself included, have seen the opposite end of that spectrum, the cognitive kind of intellectual exp- you know, experience. And and I've seen the opposite end of that, which could probably be characterized as uh, emotional or uh, experiential or maybe charismatic. Okay, you tracking with me? So the two poles that I'm, that I'm picturing here. Um, and often, and I, I want to be very careful here, because what I'm not saying is that all charismatic experiences have the following examples or the following characteristics, but the one often the ones that I have seen, are, it's littered with terrible theology. <laughs> when, have, when I've seen or been a part of charismatic experiences, I've often thought like, you can't say that! That's bad theology! Or that's not what the text is saying, that's bad hermeneutics! Or you can't exegete the passage like that! There's no way it ever meant that! That's kind of some of the things I say. <laughs> but here's the problem. I don't want you to check your brain at the door. I'm not interested in that, and it's not what I want for you. And sometimes I feel like when when charismatic is on the table, it's sort of check your brain at the door. The problem with that is the baby goes out with the bathwater, right? You've heard that phrase before. When when, when we've seen one one side or when the pendulum swings to one side, the, the, the natural reaction is for it to swing all the way to the other side. And so as I've... as as we talk about the spirit of God and its presence among the people of God and in our lives, I guess I want to just highlight the fact that if we have any work to do at Awaken, it's to come back, it's to go from this side, the cognitive intellectual, and maybe I'll offer the possibility or create space for the miraculous. Do we believe that God heals? Do we believe... That God changes people's lives and that when the Spirit of God is present, crazy things happen. Do we believe that? Is there is there room for that at Awaken? And I'm the chief of sinners on this one. I mean I let my play my cards, right? You know, check your brain, that's been my experience. But so I want to offer the maybe the, the invitation for us as a community to ask the question of what do we expect from God? We love the Father and the Son. But what about the Spirit? Is there room for that in this community? Do we pray for that? Do we ask God to to be here in powerful ways? To do things that maybe our minds can't even grasp? Remember that quote? Our minds cannot see what the heart's not willing to obey or trust. So that's one, as we think about the Spirit. Two, where the Spirit of God is, where the Spirit of God is present, we're led into truth, and we're convicted of sin. John chapter 16 says this in verse 13. Jesus speaking, he says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And then goes on to say, and will convict you, will show you the way, will, will highlight, point out the ways in which you have missed it or are not seeing the light. And this is where I want to be really specific about. There are universal implications when the Spirit of God is present that are that is for everyone and for all of the church. And then there are these particular implications. When you say yes to Jesus, and when you follow Christ, there is this, laying down of your life in death so that you might be raised up in this new way of being, this new way of living, this new way of understanding that is the pattern of Jesus. This is the whole, this is the paradox of the gospel. This is the, we talked about it last week, the great reverse, that the only way to resurrection and new life is through death. And so when you say yes to Jesus, there is a laying down of one's life in death, so that you might be raised up in the newness of life. This is why baptism is so beautiful. We don't get to pick and choose what the Spirit has access to. When we say yes to Christ, there is an all-encompassing, everything's on the table. And this is why it's such a huge risk. This is why it's so counterintuitive. That we would lay it all on the table. Everything about me. All of my identities and the way that culturally I find myself and recognize myself, that all of that is on the table and that we don't get to pick and choose what the Spirit has access to. But here's the beauty of what the Scriptures teach, that because I follow Jesus, the Spirit of God is not only Spirit of God universal for the church, but Spirit of God for me and my own particularities, the ways in which my heart have proclivities towards things that do not give life. And here's, the, here's the, 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 the one that's really hard for us to get as sort of binary thinkers. It's either or, it's right or wrong. And hear me on this one. Don't put words in my mouth, please. The particularities for me and my heart and what is best, what is God's best for me may or may not be the same for you. What I'm not talking about here is sort of postmodern, you know, universalism, pluralism. Anything goes. No, it's not because everything's on the table. We've already crossed that bridge, right? It's all been submitted. And so now, because it's all submitted, the ways in which my heart leans towards, as Luther said, is turned in on itself, may be, and in fact most likely are different than yours. And so this is where the Spirit meets us particularly. And certainly conversations among believers where we challenge one another to live out the lives that God is inviting us into yes absolutely a part of it but the question I want to sort of ask is who leads that process it's the spirit and if we believe that's true and if we believe that the spirit of God is present man that is so much more freeing than we've got to figure it out for one another right So maybe two questions that I want to ask or prompt us to reflect on as we close, as we think about the Spirit of God's presence in this community and among the people of God. One is, what sense of expectation do you have for the Spirit of God to move in your own life and in the life of this church? I would invite us to expand on this one as Awaken. And two, If you follow Jesus, is it all on the table? All of it. For the Spirit's leading, guiding, convicting, inviting. Your relationships, your vocation, your marriage, your sexuality, your politics, everything. Paul talks about these six identities in culture. Slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. And he says... Listen, those are, those are secondary, if, if at all. What's primary is in Christ. And this is the identity from which we live and we're called and are invited. These other ways that we identify and we, we self-sort, Paul says it's Christ and it's in Christ and so everything is on the table. And the Spirit of God says this is, or or the text says that this is where life happens. This is where we are, in Jesus, resurrected, where new life begins to take form and where the Spirit of God calls us and invites us and changes us and transforms us so that our identity is in Christ. There's a ton of freedom here, right? If this is true, if the Spirit of God is leading... And we don't have to be the moral police in the world. (laughs) We can love and we can let God be God and do what God will do, which is always shining the light on the places that need light. And we follow. The book of Acts, I would encourage you to read it this next week. The disciples constantly find themselves behind the curve on this one. The Spirit of God is way out in front of them doing things and going places that they would have never expected God to be. I want to encourage this community to lean hard into depending on the Holy Spirit that's present in this community, leading and guiding and shining light. And we do that. Amen? Okay, get out of here. Find us online at www.awakethecommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Community. Or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you and next time. time.